Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We already know that Native women are strong and brave, but we don't often get to celebrate the warrior women who fought alongside men in battles and conflicts throughout history. As we wrap up National Women's History Month, we're taking time to learn about respected historical Native female warriors like Buffalo Calf Road Woman and Pita Maka. They represent strength, righteous rebellion, and a fierce devotion to land and people. Join us after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Vatican has rejected the doctrine of discovery, which justified colonization and the taking of indigenous lands. Two Vatican departments issued a joint statement Thursday saying it's not part of teachings of the Catholic Church. Indigenous people have long called for the church to rescind the legal concept. Tribal advocates are objecting to an online auction of native artifacts. Robin Vincent has more. A lot of the pieces in a Bonhams auction come from the late University of Colorado Denver professor Dean Taylor. Items are going for hundreds of dollars and include things like a beaded hide doll from the Plains Indians and hide drums. Tribal advocates say the dispossession of Native cultural and sacred items like these is common today. Shannon O'Loughlin directs the Association on American Indian Affairs. She says there's a direct relationship between alarming health statistics in Indian country and this kind of dispossession. If we look at all of the statistics, they're horrible in Indian country. And all of those things are the result of this intergenerational historic trauma, being dispossessed of your home, the things that give you health and security. O'Loughlin says the auction is one of many that should give collectors pause. She urges people to consider the human costs of commercializing these sacred items. For National Native News, I'm Robin Vincent. The Bristol-based Sustainability Summit took place this week in Dillingham, Alaska. It's a time for people to gather and talk about what sustainability means for the region. As KDLG's Izzy Ross reports, the keynote speech focused on the region's Native communities and cultural bearers. Igiagix Village Council President Alexana Salmon doesn't think the way forward is a mystery. What we're trying to achieve isn't impossible. It already was. We come from perfection. During her keynote speech at the Bristol Bay Sustainability Summit, Salmon said she used to think she had to leave the village in order to succeed. But that has changed. I want to be one of those elders that is wise. I want to share how to sow, where the best berry patches are, how to make all the traditional foods. That's what I want to be, is that elder. Salmon keeps returning to traditional knowledge as the most powerful way to protect and sustain Bristol Bay's lands and peoples. She said tribes need to assert their authority as nations in land stewardship. Let's sustain for 8,000 more, leaving the littlest footprint. In Alaska, we have the opportunity to do it right, to get it right. That means people can focus on sustaining instead of restoring. And part of that is acknowledging the efforts of others. Salmon said her elders had to give up living freely on the land to ensure the community's children had a school. And they focused on Western-style settlements in order to keep them home. I had no idea that my entire community reorganized and settled so that I could have 
that education at home so that I could love and live igiagig. That is a sacrifice. Salmon said moving forward, they need to continue to focus on education, like speaking Yupik in the classroom and creating local opportunities for students. As for the sustainability people are seeking, Salmon said it's already embedded within Bristol Bay's indigenous peoples. This is our state. We're the only people with an inherent right to our lands and waters. We have a proven track record. We have never diminished our resources. We have stood the test of time. I'm Izzy Ross. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing millions of dollars of scholarships to Native students every year. Applications are accepted through May 31st at collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Support from the Self-Governance Communication and Education Tribal Consortium, presenting the 2023 Tribal Self-Governance Conference at the River Spirit Resort starting June 26th. Registration closes June 23rd at tribalselfgov.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Lozen and Tadeste were known as fearless Apache warriors in New Mexico and Arizona. Buffalo Calf Roadwoman, Northern Cheyenne, fought next to her husband at the Battle of Little Bighorn and was even believed to have delivered the fatal blow to George Armstrong Custer. Pitamaka, or Running Eagle, is a well-known Blackfeet hunter, warrior, and war chief. In this hour, we'll learn more about these fearless Native women warriors. We'll also get some insight from a more contemporary female warrior perspective. Give us a call and tell us about the female warriors from your tribe, from your tribal history in your community. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Two Medicine River, Montana, is Carol Murray. She's a retired administrator for the Blackfeet Community College. She's Pecunny. Carol, welcome to Native America Calling. Uh, we'll hold off on Carol here for just a moment. I'd also like to introduce Erin Weiss. She's in Dulce, New Mexico. She's a land and body sovereignty advocate. She's Hickoria Apache and Laguna Pueblo. Erin, welcome to Native America Calling as well. Good morning, everybody. And joining us from Fort Benning, Georgia, is Army Sergeant First Class Keyshawn Smith. She's the president of Native American Women Warriors. She's from the Fort McDermott Paiute and Shoshone Indian Reservation. Keyshawn, welcome to Native America Calling, and also thank you for your service. Good afternoon, and thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here today. Absolutely, absolutely. Erin, I'd like to go ahead and start the conversation with you. And please give us some historical context here about uh, 
Lozen and her motivation to fight and, and, and what was going on during this time between the Apache bands and the U.S. Army? Yeah, you know, I want to call into um, the room just, you know, as we're talking about warrior women, just my grandmothers from the Hickory Apache Nation and Pueblo of Laguna want to honor them and have them here with me. I also just want to, um, you know, touch point on one of the conversations around Lozen and Tereste. Um, they were um, both warriors in their own right. Um, Lozen had been traveling with her brother's uh, Victoria's band. Uh, Tereste had been traveling with her first husband in Cochise's band in southern Arizona, and both of them actually met when they began to fight with Goyasle, um with Geronimo's band. Um, and, you know, the two of them were actively evading, um, you know, Western expansion. They were trying to negotiate treaties on behalf of their people. And um, this was all happening in the 1880s. Um, they even together helped um, Geronimo escape from the San Carlos Reservation in 1885. And when that happened, uh, the two of them then began to start writing and negotiating these treaties to the best of their abilities on behalf of the people because they realized um, that the men's physicality strength was, you know, greatly feared uh, by the so-called United States government. Okay, so we're talking late 1800s. This was a, a really classic period in, in Apache history. In these names you mentioned, Geronimo, Victorio, Cochise, these are these are names and figures who are well documented throughout history. But Lausen and Tadeste, not so much. We don't hear uh, nearly as much uh, about these figures, but they were very, very significant. And um, Victorio, who was uh, influential during that time as well. And can you tell us a little bit more about that relationship there with Victorio and how Lozen was able to influence and also assert herself uh, within this such pivotal time in Apache history? Yeah, I think it's important to note that her brother was chief at the time, and he himself declared her um, to be his right hand and the shield to their people. Uh, one of the things that he said was that he noticed that, you know, she had kind of eschewed the traditional roles of Apache women instead favoring the art of war strategy was something that she was really good at. And so rather than trying to force her into what we would now know as a gender role, um, he uh, instead decided, you know what, I'm going to take my sister with me. And um, one of the things that he noted was, um, and again, I think a thing that Geronimo really aligned with within Lozen um, was her spiritual connection to the earth and to the ancestors, um, to the star world. And a lot of times they would rely on her um, to do ceremony prior to going in any specific direction so that they would have an idea of where their enemies were coming from. Um, one of the things that also was happening was that, you know, um, Lozen was displaying that she had no interest in marrying a man. Um, but yet she took a partner. She was with Tereste. It was, you know, noted and documented that the two of them were in a relationship, that they were very much in love. And it was only, um, you know, when they were all taken together in Alabama, when they were finally captured, um, that they were, or sorry, in Florida, where they were finally captured, that they were separated. Um, Lozen was taken to Alabama where she died. And Tereste ended up moving on. Um, going out, you know, she went to Oklahoma, she lived there, she went to Florida, then she was out in Fort Sill in Oklahoma at a settlement there. She ended up remarrying um, an Apache man there and afterwards never spoke her language. Um, I mean, never spoke anything other than her language, never spoke English again, refused to speak it. 
and for anyone that knew her, said that she mourned Lozen for the rest of her life. And what I think is most remarkable about that, at least in my ways of knowing and the way that I grew up, was that there weren't people that way in our community, right? No one was that way, at least not openly and out. But I read this this transcription of this story of Lozen and Tereste and the way Tereste just spoke with such love and admiration for this person. And it wasn't sexual. It wasn't even overtly romantic. It was just, here is this person I chose to be the partner of my life who was forcibly removed from me by a governmental body while we were trying to protect our people. And all we were doing was having ceremony and making sure that we were ensuring lands and prosperity for folks that were coming afterward. This is a, a really beautiful, moving story that you're describing, Erin, and, um, but bittersweet. Bittersweet and that Lausen sounds like she died sad and, and estranged from, from her people there in Alabama, but Tedeste apparently was able to, to move on, however, still carried that love uh, to the grave. And, you know, tell us more about this relationship and what, is it, what does it show us about uh, the Apache people more than 100 years ago, well over 100 years ago, and their acceptance of, of two-spirit people? You know, I wouldn't even uh, go as far as to be able to speak on behalf of Apache people, right, because I am Hickorya. These were women from other tribes. I do want to, like, say with acknowledgement to my research that I think that it's, um, you know, critical for all Indigenous people to acknowledge at this point in time um, the targeted people in our communities, the trans, the queer, the non-binary um, people within our community who um, historically, prior to Western expansion, prior to the Christianization of many of our communities, the Catholicism, um, you know, there were people who were recognized for being, um, you know, gender fluid, who were not identifying one way or the other, who were two-spirit. And I think that this story in particular speaks to me because these men who were chiefs and warriors in their own right, defaulted to the wisdom and knowledge of the women that were riding with them, respected them for who and how they wanted to be identified and seen as, and also made space for love that existed in whatever form it needed to, and no one asked questions because that wasn't the focus. The focus was on the people, and I think it's really important for our nations, all nations, to focus now at this time, especially when trans rights, especially for children, are under attack, for children who are trying to identify in a way we have such high suicide rates in our communities for a variety of reasons, and I don't want this, to me, to be another one, because it took me 26 years to realize that there was another person out there that had been like me. And I don't want these young people to go years and decades of their life or thinking and ending their lives, thinking that there weren't warriors out there who were just like them and who fought for the exact same things. They just didn't have the same language that we do now. And Lozen and Tedeste, um, today here, 2023, young children in these Apache communities, uh, are they learning these stories? Are they learning this history alongside the classic history that we all learned about, Geronimo and Cochise? How widely known are these figures today? You know, I mean, from my experience, everyone knows who Lozen is in Apache communities. Everyone has this deep appreciation and understanding for kind of what a you know, tough and intentional warrior she was. I think that one of the things, and I think it's, in my personal opinion, a fear that people have that if they if they say something that it'll make them less Apache or if they identify 
in a, a certain way that it'll make them less who they are, but there's no less belonging when Creator decided that we wake up every day as the beings that we were created as, regardless. And I think that mm -hmm. I know at home with me, my nieces and nephews sit down and we talk about these things openly. If they have questions, I want them to have answers. And again, like I said, I don't think this, this story is overtly romantic. It's not sexual. It's not like trying to sway the, the ideas or identities of any individual. It's just an acknowledgement of fact that these were two warriors who rode for their people, were highly revered and respected, were communicators um, and, and wrote treaties, and they were also advocates for a lifestyle um, that they deserve to have. And while, you know, it is tragic that they were separated, I think there is something beautiful to be said that, yes, she understood that she could not be alone, you know, as a, as a woman in the 1950s displaced from her homeland. She did remarry, Pereste, that is. But it was always said um, that she mourned Lozen until the end of her life, and that was always her true love. And I think there's also some recognition for people in our communities, um, like her husband, who could love her and could still understand that a great love existed and it no longer... Um, or it did not, you know, at any point impede on his ability to receive love or be love for her. Um, you right. know, and I think Absolutely. that that is something that people really need to yeah. hone in on. We're going to have to take a break. I'm sorry, Aaron. But yeah, I mean, we have to acknowledge uh, her husband and, and how he respected that relationship. He was man enough to acknowledge his role as well as her history like that. So beautiful, beautiful story. We're learning today here on Native America Calling. Anyone with a question or a comment, give us a call. 1-800-99-NATIVE. A Navajo-owned pizzeria opens on the Navajo Nation, defying odds and boosting local economy. The first ever state of Indian agriculture was delivered this month, and it's about time to start planting your garden and getting your native seeds in order with an award-winning farmer. That's all on the next episode of The Menu on Native America Calling. If you are age 45 years or older, it may be time to talk with a healthcare professional about colon cancer screening. Medicare, Medicaid, and the Marketplace have you covered. For more information, visit healthcare.gov or call 800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're learning about historical Native women warriors today. Are there women in your tribe who made a name for themselves on the battlefield or fighting for their people's rights? Give us a call. Tell us about them. We want to know. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That number again, 1-800-996-2848. Give us a call. Our phone lines are open. We're waiting for your call. 1-800-996-2848. On the line now is Erin Weiss, and she's telling us uh, the story of the Apache warrior Lausen and... Aaron, this was such a, a, an important and critical time in the history of the Apache people, late 1800s. And I'm curious to know, you know, if you, for people that, that study uh, the history of that band of Apache that she was a member of and how their history has played out and who they are as a people today, is it safe to say that, that um, 
that they wouldn't necessarily be the people they are and some of these treaties and, and how they were signed and how they were negotiated had it not been for the role of Lozen? I think that it would be safe to say that, you know, the the framework of any of our treaties as led by Indigenous women wouldn't be the same if it weren't for Lozen. And I think that, you know, you look at um, folks like Wilma Mankiller, who referenced Lozen, or, um, you know, any of these leaders that we have in-house now. We have, you know, Secretary Deb Holland. I think that there are so many different people who are warriors in their own right who have been um, holding these roles because of people like Lozen. I don't know that, I mean, I'm, I, I guess folks will be mad anyway, but I think that, um, you know, patriarchy holds a very strong place within many of our um, tribal systems, and I don't know that there is often the acknowledgement historically of all of the matriarchal contributions that have been made. I know that there are oral retellings, but I think it would be very important for there to be more documented retellings and historical accounts of all of the contributions of the women. Um, especially those women like Lozen and Dateste, who were not, um, you know, they weren't in this time, day, and age where we could document exactly what they were doing or how they organized the frameworks in which they operated. And I think now um, the the Chiricahua people, I mean, everybody thrives in their own way, but I think that to acknowledge the women um, who were first acknowledged by those forefathers within the tribes, right? Um, Lozen and, I mean, sorry, not Lozen, Victorio and Geronimo and Cochise, all of those men who said, you know what, we trust these women, we respect them enough to let them lead is something that needs to be revisited more, in my opinion, um, not just in tribal classrooms, but classrooms nationally and internationally. Aaron, thank you again for joining us and educating us on these important figures in Apache history, by all means. Uh, I'd like to introduce our next guest now, Carol Murray. She's up in Two Medicine River, Montana. She's a retired administrator for Blackfeet Community College. She is Pacunny. Carol, hello. Hi. Good to hear you. Good to hear you as well, Carol. And um, inspiring story we just heard about Lozen and, of course, uh, Pitamaka, who was a pivotal, pivotal figure, woman warrior as well. Tell us, what led her to pursue the warrior's life? I I understand that um, her pursuit was to... to um, have the opportunity to provide for her family. And to me, it seems like um, in that in that day and age um, of her time, it had to be extremely, um, extremely forceful. Um, so, so her personality um, had to be that because when her when her father passed away, um, she had to provide for her mother and her siblings, and I think that the siblings, um, when you are from a family who who has uh, younger siblings, you know it's very it's a very different type of um, uh, responsibility um, versus. Mm-hmm you know, the, the mother, father 
type figure. And in in the the 1800s, the the mid 1800s, I think that she was um, she felt like she was the most able of her family group to to provide. So so she so she did that, and and so Pita Makan. Um, was originally named Brown Weasel Woman, and then it was changed to um, Running Eagle. Um, so, so when I looked at when I looked at her lifestyle um, in the 1800s, and and was comparing the the women warriors of the 1900s, um, it was very very obvious um, that given our location, which is mainly Montana, Yellowstone, um, in Canada, through the to the Saskatchewan River, um, it was a long um, geographic area, and mm-hmm. so. So she was she was providing the role that that was most needed for her for her um, family and and for her um, for her tribe and so Carol you explain so, you know, we okay, talk- I, okay I'm sorry Carol just a, just a little bit more context so she uh, lived during the mid 1800s and just tell us a little bit more uh, about what was going on with her tribe during that era and just uh, the role she played the exploits the, that she provided um, give us a little more background on who she was so so yeah so if you think about the 1800s um, in the context of her tribal group being the Bikani, um we were we were very um, much intact with our land um, and still what we have today. And so when, when she was um, when she was considered a warrior, she was not only killing other tribal group members because because the encroachment of all of the other tribes was moving toward what I call Pikani um, world, and so, so when, um, so in her day, she had she actually had to forcibly uh, defend her own people from other tribal groups, and so, so it's kind of a difficult, um, it's kind of a difficult history about. Um, because, mm-hmm. um, because we know, you know, if you look at the, if you look at the development of people who were pushed all the way through, um, every direction, um, our world, our Pikani world is kind of sort of located in a centralized sort of setting. And, um, and so, so because she was, because she was um, having to 
fight and be fierce against other tribal groups, uh, mainly the um, in our area, the crow were encroaching, the um, the flathead we call them flatheads, contemporarily, but um, the Salish and Kootenai, uh, Ponderé, um, mm-hmm. the Cree, all the the tribes that surrounded us, we were we were having to battle them um, because because we didn't understand that you know they were being pushed from from uh, all the other lands and they they're just trying to survive too so i think i think with her um when we say a woman warrior um it's somebody who 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 listened to the creator and the creator said i i gave this area for you to take care of defend it with everything you have and i think with her teachings that that was the that was the way the pikani people were and so a defender so i think that yeah okay and carol what do you what do we know uh, about you know her her exploits on the battlefield. I mean, do we we know like about how many battles she fought in, and um, you know how she actually engaged uh, out there in these conflicts. I mean, physically out there on the battlefield with a weapon, and engaged in combat. Wow. I mean, just just such an interesting figure in history. And um, do you know about how many battles she fought in, or any specific stories of, of battlefield exploits that that you can share? Well, you know, um, I don't know the the, the exact number um, because so much of our history was erased um, so that, you know, sadly enough, um, the idea was genocide for us and and every everything that that was directed um, for the defense of, and I call her the defense. Um, yeah, she had to, you know, one of the biggest things at that time was stealing horses. And so she stole horses um, from other tribal groups. Um, the part that we're not talking about, and maybe we probably should, is um, the homesteaders who were starting to move into our encroach in our territory also um you know we don't tell the stories about um you know about the the horses that um have brands on them because it's you know it wasn't good for the tribe so she wouldn't have talked about (laughs) and said you know (laughs) yeah you know well i go i went down to bozeman and uh area (laughs) and you know (laughs) And I got and stole a dozen horses. All these horses, <laughs> yeah, I stole a dozen horses, and they they had all these nice brands on them. You know, she wouldn't say that because right, <laughs> because right. he just didn't do that. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Carol, um, as I understand it, uh, her legacy, her history, uh, for many years, it wasn't really celebrated there amongst the Pakani people, wasn't talked about very much. Is that starting to change now? Yes, you know, I think I think it's really starting to change to appreciate the gifts that Creator gave us, and and that was her gift, you know, to to defend her her family and her people as best she could, and so um, I think it's changing. Women are being um, women are being recognized for the strength um, that they have. And the role that they play in the black in the Pikani, and I say black Pikani uh, simultaneously because um, because we are we're recognized as Blackfeet and then we're recognized as Pikani, but it's one and the same. And um, and so I think she um, she just portrayed that. So so people have a an idea that. Okay, it's it's okay in um, in paternalism. It's okay to to talk about maternalism now, and um, you know, there's there's been many facets when we start to talk about why people did what they did. Um, but I think I think the women warriors today um, are just really 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 remarkable. You know. Um, mm-hmm. They're having to challenge. They're having to challenge themselves. And um, one of the things that I'm involved in is um, is hosting uh, relay championships. Um, and when I say relay championships, if people come there, they're going to see the quality and the the ability of the current women today who are, um, you know, who are just enjoying, um, we say enjoying life, but it's a personal challenge. Um, and so the personal challenge of, of being able to, um, to just use your gift um, as an example one of the ladies that I think um, has to be recognized. She's a young lady in the early 20s, um, but the Crow Nation um, in eastern Montana has a um, ultimate warrior, and she's won the ultimate warrior for six times, six years in a row, and. And in order to win the ultimate warrior, you have to be able to um, to um, boat, to run, and to ride three horses. And 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 the fastest one that ends up winning wins. But in, but in the same time, she's doing all that, making her physical. Uh, body ability to do things. Um, she's been she's attending college, um, and so I think the woman warrior of today is very uh, very complex and very very capable. 
It, it is. It is. It is complex, and I, I really appreciate Carol you sharing all this information today, uh, both historically and also contemporary. And uh, I'm familiar with the Ultimate Warrior, uh, that competition that takes place up there in Crow Country, where they run and they ride. And I've just always, I've always wanted to go check that out because it just seems like such a, a really, really awesome way to celebrate Native history and culture in a contemporary setting. So. Uh, Carol Murray, she's up in uh, Two Medicine River, Montana, and she's explaining uh, some of the history there with uh, the woman warrior by the name of Pitamaka, who lived in the mid-1800s and uh, stole horses and uh, other battlefield exploits. Uh, wonderful history there from the Pacani people in uh, what is now Montana and also up uh, north of the border in parts of Canada as well. And uh, anybody who would like to chime in on this conversation today, if you have a woman warrior in your tribal history, we would sure like to hear that story or perhaps share uh, the story of a contemporary warrior on Native America Calling. We'll be right back. Addiction touches nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers as a peer support worker with culturally relevant training. More at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. This Easter, you can find truly unique gifts and menu items from SweetgrassTradingCo.com, a Ho-Chunk Inc. company, where you can choose from a variety of food, beauty, and wellness items from tribes across Turtle Island. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. This is Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. We're honoring Native female warriors today and there's still time to join this conversation. Are there female warriors in your tribe you'd like to give a shout out to? Do you have any veteran elders in your family you consider warriors? Tell us about them. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Again, 1-800-99-NATIVE. Give us a call. Our third guest, again, is joining us from Fort Benning, Georgia, Army Sergeant First Class Keyshawn Smith. Keyshawn, uh, you've been waiting patiently listening to these stories about uh, Native women warriors from history. Were you familiar with some of these figures? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, well, not, I mean, I didn't have as much knowledge, but just learning and hearing what everybody had to say is truly inspiring. It really is, so much so. And um, you enlisted uh, more than 20 years ago, and you have uh, you were a contemporary Native woman warrior, and, and you've served uh, proudly in, in the armed forces. Uh, in fact, uh, Army Ranger, Special Forces. And um, all these years uh, being in the military and your different assignments, um, how much motivation you, do you draw from, from the history of your people and specifically just knowing that uh, you carry on a proud tradition of, of Native women who were also leaders on the battlefield? Yeah, yeah, actually I do. I really do. Um, so I did join in March of 2003, and um, shortly thereafter was when when we got called to go fight in, in Iraq. And during that time, I want to recognize Lori Paistawa. She's a member of the Hopi tribe. She was one of the first females to be taken from us in combat. And so with that being said, um, being that I'm a part of Native American Women Warriors, I'm the president for this organization. Um, our founder, Micheline Bigman, actually went to the family 
in in her honor and ask that we wear her um, in remembrance of of her over our left heart on our uniforms. When I say uniforms, I'm talking about our traditional regalia that we use when we do color guards and perform different events and and different things that our organization does. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Lori Pestawa. Uh, yeah, certainly we're all familiar um, with Lori's uh, history and, of course, uh, uh, serving and, and paying that ultimate sacrifice uh, for her people and, and for her country. And um, and you as well, Kishan. I mean, uh, you knew from the start when you signed up that uh, facing combat was a very real possibility. And what was what went through your mind? Uh, you know, because I'm, I'm sure people told you, you know, are you sure about this, Kishan? You really want to go uh, in the military, especially during this time with with as high as tensions are in some parts of the world. But you went ahead and did it anyways. What, what was your thought process? Oh, that's a great question, and thank you for asking me. So my mindset was just to defend our country. You know, um, I knew that there was a lot going on here here in our homeland after everything that happened in with the trade towers getting hit and all that, but also the fact that we come from a long line of warriors. We come from those that fought graciously and fearlessly, you know, to get us to where we are today. And just having that warrior mentality, you know, it was just something, it was a calling for me. It was for me to go and do something better and greater than I was doing at the time. And to me, it just, it, it was very successful journey for me. These 20 plus years that I've been here, um, I'm going to tell you right now, it was not easy going into combat like that. Uh, I served the first time was 12 months in Iraq. That was when it was really, really bad. That was an initial push back in. Uh, I want to go ahead and um, go back to Aaron Weiss now. And um, Aaron, I'm sorry, we're just going to go back to uh to Keyshawn here in just a moment. But Aaron, uh, listening to, to these stories today, you know, hearing more uh, from Carol up in uh, Montana and now from Keyshawn in, in Georgia and her experience uh, in the military, um, what do you think uh, for young Native women today uh, growing up and, and why is it so important to, to not only learn this history, not only learn the history, but really embody the spirit of what it means to be a Native woman warrior? Yeah, I think that, thank you, you know, to everyone who has spoken. Y'all have shared such beautiful histories. Um, and, you know, also, Kishan, just Ihetan for your dedication. I think um, it's important for folks to understand these histories. Like I said, not only for people who identify as women, but all members of our tribe, because there are stories that are interwoven that are, um, if you think of it like a rope, right, we're all strands of this rope. And only together do we remain strong. And I think it's really, really important for us to understand that it's not just these women, but it's the non-binary femmes, it's the trans people, the trans men, the trans women in our communities, the people who may not know what their gender identity is, who may identify as two-spirit, who may not have a gender, um, and who identify in ways that they don't have words for and may only ever know um, when they touch the earth because English was not our original language. And so it makes sense sometimes to me that we don't have words for what it is that we're trying to say. But I think these histories 
help us understand the general concepts that they were trying to introduce to us through their traditional ways of knowing and to help us understand how we carry our traditions, our languages, our ways of knowing, and the ways we love on each other forward with the knowledge that women as water givers and water bearers brought us here, um, no matter how they look. Okay. Thank you, Erin. And let's go back to Kishan now. And, and Kishan, you were you were telling us a little bit about your history there in combat in the Middle East. And um, have you served alongside other Native women warriors besides yourself during your career? Actually, I have, but it's very rare and far in between. So moving forward, in 20, I'll just go ahead and start back over from where I left off. I'll try to anyway. Okay. I'm to pick back up. And so, in 2013, the Defense Secretary announced that the ban of women in combat would be lifted entirely. So, fast forward to 2014, I was invited to be one of the first females to be to attend the Army Ranger training here at Fort Benning. They requested us women in leadership roles, and this was a pivotal moment in military history to be the very first female to attend this course. In 2015, was the first female to attend the Ranger course at Fort Benning, where now they're able to attend without discrimination. So then before 2017, females were initially assigned to attend and integrate training at Fort Benning to earn the infantry title. Today, women are stepping into positions which were never permitted, which we were never permitted to fulfill or even forced out of in silence just like our people still are today and we're still repressed still. And it's just, it's, it's, it's us moving the way forward. It's, it's us breaking those barriers. So and I'm here to say that us as women can do all things, being in leadership roles, very complex things that we do, especially Native women. We run our homes, we lead, we love our families in so many ways. And I'm here to, I'm here to serve and protect our youth and our future generations. Growth is growth and growth is growth. And that's what keeps us moving forward. So I want to tie that into what my organization, what NAW does. It allows us women to unite and support each other and all of our communities. And with that being said, we're all nations, all tribes. We all join together and we have all served one way or another and with that being said, it brings us together, and it makes us feel like we can talk to each other in a different way, in a way where we don't really have to explain ourselves, where you get the inside joke, where we can just cut loose and be ourselves. But at the same time, we know what we've been through. We've been there together. It could have uh -huh. been at the same time, or it could have been at a different time, but the fact is that we've all been there together. We've all been in some type of similar situation throughout our time in the service that where we could relate and bounce back in and support each other in that way. Keyshawn, how many members do you have in Native American Women Warriors? So currently we have about 50 members, but active members about 20, 25. And do you meet face-to-face? -face? Is it more of a social media kind of thing? How do you interact? Okay, so right now we're we are all virtual organization, completely virtual. Um, Micheline Bigman, she's our founder, and she's the one who got this whole thing started for us in 2012. And you know, back then she would always be asked, "Well, where where's your headquarters located?" And she would always just tell them, "You know, wherever my laptop is," because we've always pretty much been organ um, virtual. And to answer your question, yes, we do meet up. A lot of times we have one to two events a month. 
sometimes more. But at a minimum, we meet up about one to two times a month. And when we do get together, it's different groups of ladies. Sometimes it's the same, but usually it's it's just women, all of us women unite from different areas. Kishan, it sounds like there are more opportunities than ever before uh, for, for Native women and all women uh, serving in the armed forces. And uh, what do you say to young people, young, young women, teenagers perhaps, that are interested in enlisting? What's your advice to them? I would tell them, go for it. You know, I would tell them that they could do anything they set their mind to. I am here as a mentor, as a person, if, you need, if you're looking for guidance or advice, I could tell you my story, and whether if it helps or not, then, you know, then I'll, I'll, I'll do my best that I can to encourage our future generations because that's what it's all about. It's about learning a different skill, a different mindset, and a different way from what, you know, what your normal day-to-day could be. Joining the military is not for everybody, and that's something that we tell soldiers all the time when they come in. It's not for everybody. But at the same time, it could give you a different view of things that you've never experienced before. Okay. And Kishana, I want to follow up on that because when I hear people say that it's not for everybody, well, tell us who exactly, who is the military not for? What kind of person would you recommend? Hey, you don't belong in the military. Don't even think about it. Who would that person be? Describe them. So that that's a great question. So a lot of times you have the soldiers, like I've seen it in the past, you have the soldiers that get extremely homesick. And then sometimes there's nothing that you can do about that. There's other times where it's they don't, they've never been away from their family members or it's just the fact that they don't like to comply and listen to, you know, like the command authority. This is what it's called, the chain of command. They don't like being told what to do. And a lot of times we see that with older soldiers. So the older that the person, the individual is, they may have a, a leader that's in their 20s, and this individual may be in their 30s and say, hey, you're a kid to me. I don't have to listen to what you're telling me. So that's why uh-huh. I say sometimes it's not for everybody. Or say, for example, if you have a criminal history, you know, sometimes it's not for everybody. You could get yourself into more trouble. But on the other hand, those that it is for, you just make the best of your situation. And that's mm-hmm. probably the best bit of advice I could give to somebody is just, if if you look back at what situation you were in prior to coming in, and if you made a better situation for yourself, then maybe it is for you. Keyshawn, great advice. And, and and I know that the military has changed a lot, but but are there still some of these old, uh, you know, kind of chauvinistic attitudes there with regard to women who serve such as yourself? Hey, you know, uh, you know, you, you're not you're not the equal here. You can't you can't handle yourself on a battlefield. Do you get some of that? And if so, how do you deal with it? <laughs> it is so funny. You are asking all the right questions today, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> it is so funny you ask that because this right here, my last position that I was in, actually I, I was faced with that type of adversity. Um, being that I am in the infantry field, because Fort Benny is the home of the infantry. So you have a lot of these older leaders or the men that still feel like it's a man's world where they don't see a female as their equal so you're constantly, as a female, having to prove your worth. So you have to work 10 times harder than the male sitting next to you. And most of the time, being that what I've learned based on my military experience, I know how to use my voice. I know how to step up and say, hey, if that doesn't look right, that seems wrong. But when I do that, sometimes males get very, very offended by that. And then now you're put in a situation to where you have to continuously 
feel like you're fighting an uphill battle. So, yeah, I, I could tell you, yes, mm-hmm. it still happens to I, this day. Yeah. Which is unfortunate that okay. it does, but... Yeah, well... <laughs> It is unfortunate, but I imagine it only makes you stronger, and ultimately it probably only makes you a, a better leader. And uh, along those lines, Keyshawn, one thing we have not talked about yet is um, you're due for retirement very soon. Um, when are you, when are you going to retire? Again, funny you ask that. It's coming up next month. <laughs> next month I will be officially <laughs> okay, retired. Next month. So, uh <laughs> Wow. Okay. So, so more than 20 years, uh, active service in the military. Uh, I just want to thank you again for your service and, uh, all the time and the sacrifices that you have made, uh, on behalf of your country and what's next. I know you're still very young. Uh, what do you have plans to do now that you're going to be retired soon? Well, thanks for asking. So as of right now, I'm going to take the summer off enjoy traveling with my family and spending time with them. And then I'll start hitting the books again and I'm going back to school. And then more, my, my ultimate plan is going back into the government system and getting some type of a, a, a position, a new career to where I could retire again with my second career. Alrighty. And that is the the advantage there of enlisting young like you did is, is you put in your time and you get all those benefits. And then, of course, you're still young enough to launch into a whole new career. And I'm sure you're going to be just as successful, probably more successful uh, in your second act, Kishan, as you've been uh, serving in the United States Armed Forces. And uh, this has been a, a really, really enlightening show today. And again, we are celebrating Native Women Warriors. And of course, uh, it's only appropriate being at uh, the month of March and uh, so much emphasis now on the legacy and the spirit of, of proud women in our Native communities. And I've just really enjoyed my conversation today with Carol Murray, Aaron Weiss, and Keyshawn Smith for helping us again celebrate the proud legacy of Native women warriors. Join us tomorrow for an update on the latest in Native food news with Andy Murphy on the menu. That's our regular feature on Native food and sovereignty. Thank you for listening to the one and only Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Indian Arts and Crafts Act protects authentic American Indian and Alaska Native artists and craftspeople and their art and craftwork. Under the act, it is illegal to market art or craftwork misrepresented as American Indian, Indian, Native American, or Alaska Native made, or as the product of a particular Indian tribe. Reporting potential act violations can be done at doi.gov slash IACB or at 1-888-ART-FAKE. Support provided by Indian Arts and Crafts Board. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. 
Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.